From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It may be a complicated question, but when you die, what do you want done with your body? Well, there's something new to consider beyond burial in a casket or cremation. We'll explore the thinking behind human composting, essentially turning the body into nutrient-rich soil, which can then be returned to the earth. A new Colorado law allows it. Then there's a big disconnect in one Colorado county between the price of a home and the price of land. A lot of people are out here solely because of the fact that they're broke. They can't afford anything else. You can't afford to, to live in fair play. You can't afford to live in Buena Vista. Also, Colorado Matters marks 20 years. We'll listen back to an interview with the founder of the House for All Sinners and Saints. And later, a Halloween treat. Quoth the Raven, nevermore. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel, live from Garfield County. When you die, what do you want done with your body? A traditional burial, cremation, donation to science? Well, new law in Colorado gives you another option, human composting. Essentially, turning the body into nutrient-rich soil, which can then be returned to the earth. A small number of mortuaries in Colorado are doing this, including the Feldman Mortuary in Denver. Jim Cohen is their president. Hey, Jim. Good morning, Nathan. So this process has a few different names, natural organic reduction, terramation, and human composting. Can you explain exactly what this is? It's a process of reducing the human body to, like you said, the nutrient-rich soil. It is an accelerated process of returning the body to earth. And what is the process to do that? I know there's a vessel and there are things like that. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that process? Absolutely. It is a scientific process. It's a um, large vessel that the body is placed into. It's um, about the size of a, let's just use um, a, a large casket, a very large casket of sorts. Hmm. It's a large vessel, like a freezer chest, body goes into it and organics are put into this vessel. It's about a four to one ratio of the body weight. So um, the uh, organics are uh, alfalfa, straw, wood chips, and there's a little bit of heat that is created. There might be a little moisture that might be added. And then the body does lie in state for about 30 days while the organics do their job, creating these microbes and, and this process of breaking down the body. And what comes out is essentially soil, right? That is correct. You get a nutrient-rich composted soil. It is, after about 30 days, um, still the bones do need to come out and be processed and reduced to um, what people might refer to as ash. But it's that fine dust of what bones can be. That, um, And then that's reintroduced to the soil that's mixed up. And after the first 30 days, the soil is just a little bit too chemically 
hot to mm. be used to plant a tree in or uh, other other uh, plants. So it can really only be used as a topsoil. But still, after those first 30 days, it's a little too hot. It will sit for another 30 days. So really after 60 days is when you have this usable soil. Now, what motivates a person to want to do this? I think people are looking for a way to honor and respect their loved one while honoring and respecting the earth. Cremation itself, fire cremation, what everyone is so used to, this incineration of the body that uses fire also uses a lot of the fossil fuels, toxins go into the air, the bones that are left behind are then needed to be processed. They're, they're pulverized and they are full of these toxins also, that fossil fuels in them, they're charred, they're, all the nutrients are burnt out of it. So many people believe that this fire cremation, this incineration is the green alternative, is a green option, and it's actually the opposite. So now with the introduction of either water cremation or this natural organic reduction, this composting, that's true green burial. That's true green care for the body and for the earth. So human composting is is one way. You you mentioned water cremation. What what is that? Alkaline hydrolysis is another way to reduce the body to to kind of a, again, ash form. First, the body goes into a large vessel, a large amount of water is um, about 95% of water is applied to this in this vessel, along with some alkaline, just like hand soap. And the body does dissolve. And all the water that is used is is nutrient rich. It still has all those um, incredible nutrients from our bodies. But the bones are left behind just like with fire cremation, but these bones were not um, infiltrated or not soaked up uh, any kind of toxins. They're not charred. They are pure. They will dry a little bit and then they are redu- reduced in the process and, as well to get, again, that ash. Interesting. And and you were one of a few mortuaries that pushed to make human composting legal in Colorado. Is this why? To, because it is more green, you say? That's not exactly why. It is, Uh of course, one of our focuses, but we as a predominantly Jewish funeral home, it is in line with our values of caring for the body itself. Jews already compost. We already bury. We already bathe our bodies without chemicals. We dress our bodies in natural fabrics that return to the earth, and we're placing our bodies in natural all-wood caskets that return to the earth. So we, in essence, are already composting. However, it's the more natural um, time to allow the body to go back to the earth as it goes down into the grave and the body does decompose and the microbes and the organics that are in the soil take over from there. The natural organic process is an accelerated and it's just in line with our values of caring for the body and staying natural, what's good for the earth, but also dignity for the body itself. The fire cremation process, Nathan, is quite brutal to the body itself. People like to um, think about just they wiggle their nose and poof that their loved one is this ash and it's all good and let's go spread grandma around in the mountains when in fact that's toxic and it's not such a gentle process. The body goes through so much when this fire is applied to the body itself. Natural organic reduction or the composting, the body's laying there. The natural mm. organics are doing their process. It's just, it's, I think, respectful, more respectful for the body itself. Yeah. 
Now, now you haven't started doing the actual composting in Colorado yet. At this point, what happens if someone comes to you and says, I, I really want to do this? We have partnered with one of the two um, companies that are out of Seattle, Washington, the two front runners of this industry that have created the um, the science behind it. Um, the science isn't new. It's only new for the human body. It's been used for generations for farm animals. And um, so we've gone to one of the two, um, it's called Return Home. And that president, Micah Truman, has just been so in front of the science of it, how to do this with dignity, how to do it to scale. Um, and that's out of state, that is, is that right? That's out of state? That's out of state. It's in Seattle, Washington. I see. Yeah. So eventually we'll have our own facility here. Um, right now there is another firm that we have partnered with here, the Natural Funeral. Incredible people that have the same values that we do and the same vision of caring for the body. They have created a couple of vessels. It is going to unfortunately come to the point, though, of can we do this to scale? If so many people want this and these bodies are in these vessels for 30 days, maybe even longer, 60, maybe, maybe six months, maybe a full year, we have to figure out how we can house these loved ones with dignity and respect. So with, the, with that said, uh, are there drawbacks to doing this method from a purely business perspective? You know, I can't think of any other than the fact that we have to have a certain uh, facility, a large enough facility to handle the capacity. That would be the only drawback is there might be some initial capital investment and it might sit empty for just a little bit. But once this gets going, I don't see that as an issue. This process seems to do away with some of the things people may think of when talking about a funeral and and burial, perhaps the viewing, the, the casket, the vault, even embalming. What happens when a funeral takes place using this method? Well, what I do want to caution people that are interested in this method, this is just a means of disposition, just a mm. means of disposing of the body. There still is that memorial experience that is so necessary for the mourners. This is a natural response to loss. As humans lose, we grieve. And we need to have an experience, an event, some kind of structure to allow us to feel, to express, to feel support from the community and our loved ones, to celebrate this person's life, to celebrate our memories of this person. So all of it stays the same, Nathan. You still can have that viewing. You can still have that memorial service. And then the disposition, the composting can take place after the fact. And what is the cost to do this? Is it more expensive than, say, cremation or traditional burial? It is more expensive than the cremation process itself. Uh, That's unfortunately one of the, I think, the um, incentives for people to think of fire cremation because it is, I will use that awful word, cheap. Um, Natural organic reduction or composting is a little bit more expensive at this time. I believe it's just about $9,000 total. That's with everything, memorial experience and transportation out to Seattle and the whole composting process. And that's compared to a regular cremation with memorial service could be around $3,000. So it is going to be a little more expensive right now. I think that is because we, these capital investments into this new science and the new facilities, that's going to cost us a little bit more. 
but it is a little bit less expensive than the traditional burial. You had asked, you'd thrown that one in. Yeah. The yeah. traditional burial, you'll still, ha- you do have a cemetery plot to purchase, a monument to mark, things like that. Um, but those are all very, very um, important. Right. Also in this whole grieving process. Jim, this is such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me, Nathan. Jim Cohen, president of Feldman Mortuary in Denver, speaking about human composting. It's the process of of turning the body essentially into soil. The process became legal in Colorado earlier this year. In Park County, the cost of housing is through the roof, like so many places in the state. But the cost of land is another story. It's cheap. Even so, it's left some people effectively homeless. We continue CPR's special series on housing instability today. Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce heads to Park County, where some people are unsheltered on their own property. You might be surprised how cozy a hole dug into a hillside can actually feel. Yeah, I can flip this on first thing in the morning and it'll take the chill out of the air because I don't run the heat all night. Jim McKinney originally thought this dirt pit would be his driveway. Then the cold started coming on last year, so he quickly threw up two walls of sun-bleached aspen logs. I've got aspens right on the other side of the hill here. Covered it all with canvas tarps and blankets. He calls it his hobbit house. It really doesn't look all that different from a 19th century homestead. Little windows, a sink, a wood-burning stove inside. Though he does have solar panels for his lights and for his radio. Quit working about six years ago. Various kind of health issues and I cashed everything out. And bought five acres with help from his parents. They pulled him out of a years-long stretch living on and off the streets in his 40s. He's 56 now and gaunt, though he still has these youthful blue-gray eyes. Lives on about $800 a month in disability payments from the federal government. It's definitely scratching out a living, he says. Many of his neighbors have it worse. A lot of people are out here solely because of the fact that they're broke. They can't afford anything else. You can't afford to, to live in fair play. You can't afford to live in Buena Vista. What are you doing? Park County is high, mountainous, sparsely populated. You okay? I was just taking a picture of the bison. All right, well, don't do it when they're on the main road. Be careful. Yes, sir. All right. Sheriff Tom McGraw is driving his rounds. You ask him about the housing situation in his jurisdiction, he'll paint you a picture of extremes. Becoming a homeowner, well, that's out of reach for most people. It is very rare for anybody to be able to find a home that's under $500,000 to buy. Construction costs are very high, too. Yet at the same time, some plots of land are extraordinarily cheap. Out here where we're going to, you can probably buy an acre of property for five to $10,000. He says he knows a guy who bought five acres a decade ago for only 2500 He bought it unseen. He was in Las Vegas, and they had a, a booth set up, and they were 
selling land in Hartzell in Las Vegas. And that's just it. McGraw says people from around the U.S., often facing poverty or eviction, are buying land and moving out here without understanding what it is they now own. Flat, barren squares of dry grass in the wide-open South Park Valley floor. We head out on long, unimproved gravel roads far from cell phone service or utility lines, and we begin to see a landscape dotted with rusted RVs, teepees, shipping containers, and unfinished one-room shacks. He says the new landowners usually show up in summertime when it's gorgeous. They build a nice little house. They put two-by-fours to hold the roof up, and then as wintertime comes, and you suddenly get six feet of snow dumped on top of the roof, and then it crashes down. Park County only has two incorporated towns, Alma and Fairplay. But there are a number of unincorporated communities. It leaves an already cash-strapped county planning department dealing with responsibilities normally left to city governments. The majority of the county's population lives in unincorporated Bailey. County Commissioner Richard Elsner meets to chat in a park there by the South Platte River. There are a couple of picnic tables down there that are in a perfect spot. Elsner says his already stretched thin county budget can't do much for the remote areas where the cheapest properties are sold. And it's leading to some pretty shocking problems to face in a first world country. We have, you know, a lot of people moving trailers on and motorhomes and that type of thing, thinking they can live in, in that area. Problem is, what do you do with the wastewater? If a city or county is not providing septic service, state law says the landowner must provide those services themselves. And Elsner says that's a priority to enforce, even with his tight budget. If people want to live a certain way, it's not really me to tell them that they can't, but it is me to tell them that they can't harm their neighbors. The harm of not having a septic system. It's something Sheriff McGraw and his deputies have a lot of experience with. We've had so many examples, so many cases where we go out to these places and they've got five-gallon buckets sitting all over and they're filled full of human waste. Or 55-gallon drums filled with it. Moving from the flatlands into the foothills, and McGraw says the majority of the makeshift shelters we see around us have been long deserted. More often than not, the people in them either went broke, weren't equipped to handle the cold, or couldn't get a septic put in. It's usually cheapest to just leave everything behind. You get this, and this is all... Within an arm's reach of the front door of the Hobbit House, Jim McKinney keeps a stack of papers, signed permits, and schematics for a small, permanent home he's building on his land. Comes from the engineer here. He looks for the best deals he can find on materials. He works on the house for as many hours as his back will allow. Finishes the day in a plastic lawn chair on the hill. It's peaceful and quiet. and I mean, the sun sets right between the... That's the divide, all these peaks way out there. I mean, it's just beautiful. He said what's limiting him most right now are those state and county building requirements. He spent thousands in permit costs alone before he could even start the foundation of his new house or put in its small septic tank. 
a lot of these guys out here, this is their dream to just get a little piece of land and put a little house on it. And it's not that expensive to do that, you know, but there's so much bureaucracy and crap that, yeah, that that'll never happen. Not far from Jim McKinney's land, there's an abandoned old white motorhome with a blue door. It's surrounded by the bent remains of a wrought iron fence, and just behind, on a rock outcropping, a wooden gazebo looks out over the valley. At some point in time, it might have been really nice. In Park County, Dan Boyce, CPR News. We're sharing some of our favorite segments this week as Colorado Matters celebrates 20 years on the air. One of Ryan Warner's picks is his 2016 discussion with Pastor Nadia Boltz-Weber. She founded the House for All Sinners and Saints, a Lutheran church in Denver, and she's not your typical pastor. She's a former stand-up comedian, sports many tattoos, and swears like the stereotypical sailor. She's also a best-selling author. Ryan spoke with Boltz-Weber about her book, Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People. I love how you lay bare the the darkest parts of your nature in this book. You started the House for All Sinners and Saints in 2008, and early on you thought it would attract, quote-unquote, cool people. But you write in this book that it drew a lot of folks who are socially awkward, reading here from the book. So eventually I started to ask myself, wait, why am I not attracting other cool people? I mean, why aren't there people like me coming? And then in parentheses, you seem disgusted by your own thinking and say, what kind of person thinks this? Say more about who showed up and how that differed from your view. Well, it's kind of a a longer story, but, um, you know, earlier in that chapter, I discussed the fact that I was really sick as a kid. I had an autoimmune disorder, which caused my face to be kind of disfigured. And um, I was that way from ages 12 to 16. So, you know, I ate all of my lunches alone in middle school, and I developed a sort of angry personality that sort of masked some of that. And, um, you know, I early on in the life of the congregation, people who were socially awkward kept showing up. And I was like, why are they coming? Why aren't I attracting people like me? And it just took a couple of years before I realized, oh, my gosh, I had been attracting people like me all along. It's just it wasn't the the sort of, you know, funny, um, tattooed, you know, supposedly cool pastor who drew them in. It was the it was the awkward, painfully skinny girl who ate all of her lunches alone in middle school was drawing the people in. Like, I'd been attracting people like me all along. I was just too arrogant to admit it. Huh. And when you had that realization, what, what did it feel like that these people were actually more like you than you thought? Well, what happened was it, it I don't know, as cheesy as it sounds, it like changed the shape of my heart because... I could so much more easily love them then. Like then I, it's like because I stopped trying to hide the parts of myself that they were making me face. So instead of just projecting things on them that I didn't like about myself and then reacting in that way, I could just see how sort of broken and beautiful they were at the same time. It's like once I sort of accepted that in myself, it was easier to love that in other people as sort of pop psychology 101 as that sounds. Mm. How does that relate to the subtitle of this book, find, Finding God in All the Wrong People? Well, you know, I think, you know, religious people, it's like you have to be some 
odd combination of Ned Flanders and Bono, you know, in order to be considered like <laughs> Christian. I don't know. There, it just sort of boils down to this like t- saintly sort of, you know, nicey nice character and personality. And yet that's not, I don't experience God in, in that particular affect, you know, which I think that's just an affect. I think we all have these jagged edges of our humanity and so much of religion and spirituality is about like sanding those things down. So we're super smooth and shiny, but the fact is, is like the jagged edges of our humanity is actually what connects us to God and other people. You see that in, in Mary, don't you? Jesus' mom? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, she was, you know, this insignificant peasant girl in first century Palestine who had an unplanned pregnancy, right? That's not the way you expect God to show up, and yet... God chose to make God's home in the womb of this this young woman, which is, what does that say about all human bodies and the nature of God? I think it's something to pay attention to. There are somewhere around 250 people in your congregation. Oh, there's much more. There's like 400. 400. We have <laughs> yeah. old numbers. Yeah. It's, it's been growing. It's big, yeah. You meet in Denver's North Capitol Hill neighborhood, and you welcome LGBTQ individuals, people struggling with drug and alcohol abuse. You welcome agnostics and non-believers. You consider yourself an Orthodox Lutheran. You write in this book, there are many reasons to steer clear of Christianity, no question. What do you mean? Oh, man. I totally understand why people don't want to have anything to do with it. There's so many bad representations and it's been so perverted for so long, but um, but the fact is, is that 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 symbol system is still really powerful at its core, despite the fact that myself and so many other people have done damage to it, right? Despite the fact that it's had bad representation, myself included, that particular symbol system has so much redemption and beauty in it that I think it's we can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. You include yourself in how Christianity has been poorly represented. What do you mean? Well, like, I'm just not that nice. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, there's like this, there's this huge distance between like my ideal self and my actual self. And, and I, I am always aware of that distance. And yet I think that like the self who God has a relationship to is my actual self. I mean, I think that's one reason why Christianity is so powerful. I don't know why it's been sold as a behavior management program for so long, like a way to sort of perfect yourself and make yourself into something shiny and perfect, because that would imply you then didn't need God. What, how, how, what, what is, that doesn't even make sense. You write in this book about a woman named Alma White. How did she shed new light on what it means to be saintly for you and who is Alma White? Well, I am, um, you know, I started the church when I was still in seminary and at the time I knew of two women in the entire country I could name who had started churches by themselves. It's just not something that happens very often. And I was desperate for role models and um, a woman who's involved in the church and I uh, were walking down the street uh, right by the Capitol. And we look up and we see KPOF on the top of this church. And we look in the courtyard and there's this memorial to the founder of the Pillar of Fire Church. And it says Alma White. And it was like the early 1900s. And I just looked at her. I was like, 
Alma is a woman's name. And I just quickly pulled out my iPhone and I looked up Alma White on Wikipedia. And like, I got so excited because it was like, she founded a church in the early 1900s in Denver, like on her own. And I was so excited and I just kept reading. And she was, you know, the first bishop, female bishop in America. And she, you know, she was known for her feminism. I was like, awesome. And then I kept reading and it was like, and her association with the Ku Klux Klan and her anti-Semitism. And I was like, what? Not a role model. No. So I I call my friend Sarah Miles uh, in San Francisco and I go, oh, I thought I had a role model, but it ends up she's just a lousy racist, you know. And she said, well, you know, give me her name and I'll add her to the litany of saints along with all the other broken people of God. And it just made me go, oh, my gosh, she's right. I just... You know, the idea of a saint is like somebody who's so, who's perfected themselves, who's on, who's maybe undergone the project of their own sanctification so much that they're practically floating off the ground. And while having traits to admire in other people, there's nothing wrong with that. What I really want is to feel less alone, and I feel less alone when I know the broken parts of people, when they're honest with me about the mistakes they've made, Right. And so I think what we celebrate in the saints is truly God's ability to get beautiful, redemptive stuff done through broken people more than we celebrate the fact that these people have managed to not be broken. But if that's the case, if there's so much to celebrate in in flaws, what is the point of avoiding sin? Well, that is to say, the more I sin, the more you could find to love about me, Pastor Nadia. Yeah, probably. You know, because I do take people's private confession and absolution, and honest to God, most times it's boring. Like, like nothing, nothing personal, but like, I am unimpressed with your sin. You should really go out and try harder. But um, no, <laughs> no, but you can't actually avoid sin because it's just we're like human beings have a have a, a capacity for screwing things up. There's no way to avoid it. Now, you can avoid a lot of forms of like immorality, you know, but you're never going to avoid being somebody who's broken and who makes mistakes. And the thing is, is that because we're broken and make mistakes, it means that we have no choice but to rely on God. And so having such a sort of low view of human beings allows you to have a high view of God and the way that God comes in and fills in those cracks and manages, like I said, to get beautiful things done through us, even though we are broken. This seems like an important distinction you make between sin and immorality. Yeah, I mean, a a lot of times they're conflated, and sometimes certainly they overlap. But I think the problem with saying, oh, sin is like this list of no-nos, and if you can manage to avoid them, then you're good. Um, I've never met anybody who's managed to avoid being a sinner, because even if you manage to live this super-duper, clean-cut, moral Ned Flanders life, then you're just prideful, right? And then now, again, that's a sin, right? So we all think on some level like this kind of work or what I call law will save us. Like, just give me a plan. Give me some work to do. Give me a project to undertake. And somehow that will save me. But the thing is, is when you're under a work plan or you're under the law, you only have two choices, pride or despair. You're either prideful about the fact that you're pulling it off better than other people, or you despair at the fact that you can never manage to pull it off. And either way, there's no freedom in that. Hmm. You've made uh, several references to Ned Flanders. <laughs> For those who are not Simpsons fans, this is this sort of um, milk toast, uh, ultra conservative 
Christian in The, in the Simpsons. Who's like super duper cheerful all the time, which yeah. I'm always suspicious of. But also uh, g- like a genuinely good neighbor to people, right? Yeah, a good neighbor. And there's like nothing wrong with that. But I can't, I just can't get behind the idea that anybody is like always legitimately cheerful or always wanting to be helpful, right? Maybe their sin is their need to be needed, but it's in there somewhere. You say Jesus is like a Facebook friend who always tags bad photos of you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, the ones where like you're one eyes half closed and your butt looks really big. Uh huh. Yeah. You mean virtually every Facebook photo? Exactly. Why is Jesus like that? Well, he's. I just feel like Jesus is like relentless for not letting us off the hook when we think that we can justify ourselves. Like people would always come to him and be like, hey, look, like I honor my father and mother and I go to the temple and I tithe. So like I'm good, right? Like I've justified myself. I've undergone the project of my own sanctification. And he's like, well, have you sold all your possessions? and given them to the poor. You know, it's like the people who were stoning the woman caught in adultery. He's like, you who are without sin cast the first stone. So basically every single attempt that we have to justify ourselves, Jesus says, not so fast. You sort of dissect sin in the book through the lens of a character named Candy. I think this is not her real name. Um, You met Candy while working as a student hospital chaplain. Candy had lost her unborn child. She had several kids, but couldn't keep any of them. And she also had some physical signs of having used meth. You write that people aren't punished for their sins so much as by their sins. What do you mean, and how does Candy illustrate that? Well, the reason I was telling that that story, just to put it in context, was just the um, just the power of, of knowing... Uh, forgiveness of actually hearing that our worst mistakes do not define the way God sees us, do not give us our identity, just as our greatest victories don't define the way God sees us or Mm. give us our identity. And so in that case, um, you know, people really can be weighed down by the things that they've done. I think people can really carry that burden, like I said, of that distance between their ideal self and their actual self. But it's fascinating that I I would want to be freed from my sins and not defined by them. I am less apt to want to be um, separated from my greatest victories. I know. That's a killer, isn't it? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Well, because um, ultimately pride isn't really going to serve you in the way that we think it will. I mean, I think this is why I believe in God is I just need that power that's bigger than me to save me both from my from my sins, but also from the pride of my victories. Um, People ask me, hey, how many copies of your books have you sold? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I beg my publisher not to tell me because there's no good to be had from it. Because if it's more than I thought, I'll be prideful. And if it's less than I thought, I'm going to be depressed. So like, I don't even want to know, right? So I feel like so much of our lives can sort of teeter into one direction or another and a place that feels more integrated and balanced is to know someone else has this. Like my identity, my worth, my value is not going to be based ultimately in a spiritual way in any way by the things I've done well or the things I've done poorly. There's so much freedom in that. What role do um, skeptics, non-believers play 
at the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver? Because you, you have members who, who just aren't sure God is, is around. Yeah, I I never really feel responsible for what people believe at church. I mean, I feel responsible for what they hear, but what they believe is affected by so many things I have nothing to do with. And so we've just never thought belief should be the basis for belonging. Literally, the basis for belonging is showing up. That's it. My, I had a bishop who said that's the greatest spiritual discipline, just showing up. Mm. You talk openly about what you consider your shortcomings or internal battles, both with religion and life more broadly. Can, can we just wrap up with this excerpt? I'd like to have you read it. Sure. Okay. My own spirituality is most active in the moments when I realize God may have gotten something beautiful done through me, despite the fact that I'm an a-hole. Or when I'm confronted by the mercy of the gospel so much that I can't manage to hate my enemies. And when I'm unable to judge the sin of someone else, which, let's be honest, I love to do because my own crap is too much in the way. And when I have to bear witness to another human being suffering despite my desire to be left alone. And when I'm forgiven by someone even though I don't deserve it. And my forgiver does this because he, too, is trapped by the gospel. And when I end up being changed by learning to love someone I'd never choose out of a catalog, but whom God sends my way to teach me about God's love. But none of these things are a result of spiritual practices or disciplines as admirable as those things can be. These things are born in a religious life, in a life bound by ritual and community, by repetition, by work, by giving, by receiving, by mandated grace. Pastor Nadia Boltz Weber, speaking in 2016 with Ryan Warner. We listen back to this interview as Colorado Matters celebrates 20 years, sharing the stories of people from around the state. Since that interview, Boltz Weber has written another best selling book called Shameless, and her first book, Pastrix, was just re released with an updated afterword. She also launched her own podcast, The Confessional. Our thanks to Stephanie Wolf, who produced that interview. When we come back, a Halloween treat with the prose of Edgar Allan Poe. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. There's still time to fill out your 2021 election ballot, and we have help to make the process as easy as possible. I'm Rachel Estabrook, CPR News Director. The free voter's guide from CPR News and Denverite is online now. You'll learn about the statewide initiatives on this year's ballot, plus other useful information like how to register to vote, all of it in plain language. Come to CPR.org now for the 2021 voter's guide. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Live near Glenwood Springs, I'm Nathan Heffel. Edgar Allan Poe first published his poem The Raven in 1845. It's, of course, now considered a classic with its distinct darkness drenched in loss, grief, and the supernatural. To get you in the Halloween spirit, we're bringing you something a little different today. The Raven, as read by CPR News and KRCC staff. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping 
as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. To some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember, it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought, to borrow from my book's surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more." Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. "'Sir,' said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore, but the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door, darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there, wandering, fearing, doubting dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning. Soon again I heard a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see then what thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when with many a flirt and flutter, in there stopped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady, perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance at war, though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly grim, an ancient raven wandering on the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonium shore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore, for we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door, with such a name as Nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on the placid bust, spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing farther than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before. On the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, Doubtless, said I, 
What it utters is its only stock and store, caught from some unhappy master, whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore. Tell the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, never more. But the raven, still beguiling, all my fancy into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking, fancy unto fancy thinking, what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking, nevermore. This I sad engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall press <sighs> nevermore. Then, methought, the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee by these angels. He hath sent thee respite, respite and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, oh, quaff this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore. Is there, is there bomb in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore, quoth the raven. Nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by the heaven that bends above us, by the God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked, upstarting, get thee back in the tempest and the night's plutonium shore. Leave no black plume as a token of thy lie, thy soul has spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, Never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door, and his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight over him streaming throws his shadow on the floor, and my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven 
as read by CPR News and KRCC staff, including our own Ryan Warner. Our thanks to Mike Lamp for this idea, sound design and mixing by Justin Peacock, with production and editing from Corey Jones. To see a video of this reading, come to CPR.org. For William Hill, The Raven was the perfect poem to translate into music. Hill was the principal timpanist for the Colorado Symphony when he composed a piece for the orchestra and chorus. It's really about the human condition of human loss, loss of a loved one, dealing with loss, the great human question for all ages, what is this death thing about? You know, can we remember someone? Of course we do. Are they really gone? For me, the raven doesn't exist. It's a metaphor. It's in the protagonist's brain. It's in his mind. We often share many different emotions at once. And to me, art really has a chance to, to look for the gray area between the black and white. poem, of course, and I've tried to describe it in various ways in the music. Um, The poem, of course, is in the first person, so our protagonist goes through almost every emotion you can possibly imagine. He is sad for the loss of Lenore. He gets very mad about it. He has, I think, hallucinations in, in the course of the poem. But, of course, as the poem goes on, he keeps asking the bird questions that he already knows how the bird will answer with the word nevermore. And again, it's like he professes to want to forget Lenore, but we know he doesn't want to forget her. And he has beautiful memories of her, but then it makes him mad that he can't forget. So there are all these emotional complexities that I've tried to find uh, ways to describe musically. The Colorado Symphony's William Hill, speaking with CPR Classical in 2015 before the world premiere of his composition, The Raven, inspired by Edgar Allan Poe's haunting poem. We hope you have a happy Halloween on Sunday, and we leave you now with more music from The Raven. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC.